0: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. My name is Barbara Mondragon, and it's my pleasure today to welcome Mary Covington and Whitney Duhane from Denials Management Incorporated, To discuss our topic today about navigating health insurance for behavioral health and substance use disorders. Mary Whitney, welcome. Welcome to the show. Please introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the work that you do.
2: Um, Well, Well, I'm Whitney Duhame, and I'm the Vice President of Denials Management, and I've been working in insurance for about 18 years. I've been with Denials Management for about six. And uh, Mary, go ahead. Hi. Everyone,
3: happy to be here. Uh, my name is Mary Covington. I'm the president of Denials Management, Inc., and I have been working in the health insurance field for 47 years this year. Um, I started my career at Aetna in 1970, learned a lot from insurance, and now I take all of that great information I learned and I use it to be a, a health care advocate and assist families in uh, obtaining insurance benefits and coverage.
1: Great! Thank you all so much. Congratulations on forty-seven years, Mary. Um, thank you. Well, thank you so much for for being on our show today. And I guess the um, one very important question is that you know health insurance is confusing to people. What are the key aspects that individuals and families should should know or consider when purchase, purchasing insurance in general and specifically around behavioral health and mental health uh, and substance use disorders? Yes, I'll take that question. Um,
3: You know, uh, people have several options, you know, that they can try and draw from. One of them, of course, the best option would be to be working for a large employer who has an insurance plan. Um, Those are robust plans, you know, working for a large employer like Walmart or Delta Airlines. And then, of course, you have your small group market um, where a small employer, usually less than 50 employees, uh, may purchase a, a, an insurance policy. Um, you know, usually if you have that, uh, that's the best way to get insurance. And most employers have an open enrollment period annually uh, where you can sign up and sign up your dependents. You can also add or delete dependents at any time during open enrollment. And that also helps some families. Uh, the other alternative, of course, would be to look at individual insurance uh, using an agent or a broker Uh, I usually tell families families to Google uh, in their area, in their city, and look for them. Uh, And, of course, we do still currently have the uh, market exchange, uh, and that, of course, uh, is a yearly uh, enrollment. And, uh, of course, uh, that right now, there's potential for decreased options in that area, and Whitney will be talking about that earlier now, uh, insurance, there's different types you can, you can look at purchasing. And, um, you know, mental health care is one where we get a lot of uh, facilities that aren't in a provider network. So it makes it difficult to get coverage uh, in, an, in an HMO or what we call an exclusive provider organization or an EPO. Um, the PPO, the uh, participating provider uh, organization uh, does give you in and out of network benefits. So it's not like a Kaiser uh, policy where you're, you have to go to their in-network providers and you're sort of stuck. Um, so whenever I talk to a family, that's usually the best coverage we're looking for. And I always ask them to look at the bottom right of their ID card if they've got a blue cross and does it say PPO in the corner. Um, now with your HMOs and your EPOs, you want to look and see if there's any exception clauses. Some of them have these things called exception clauses where you can potentially uh, go out of network if they don't have the type of uh, provider in their network or they may have what we call a radius clause where you could go if, if you didn't have a facility of theirs within a 50 or 100 mile radius of your home, you can generally go out of network. Now, those exceptions are found in your policy, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, there are other types of insurance out there, as we all know, and that would be uh, if you were military, retired, you might have TRICARE. Uh, you've got your government plans, which are the, uh, the uh, Regions Blue Cross Federal, uh, Government Employees Hospital Association, National Association of Letter Carriers, and the like. You've also got potential for some government assistance through Medicaid. If you're older and you're disabled, of course, there's potential that you could look at a Medicare, uh, if you, if you get on Social Security. And then with younger children, uh, many families opt to, um, use a school district funding. That would be the ability for the school district to pay for funding of residential care in many cases where the school district is unable to uh, handle the child emotionally and behaviorally, and uh, many states have uh, uh, laws affecting that. And so uh, there are entities out there that can help families look into that, and that's something I think is a good thing for younger children. Now, uh, there are some considerations, of course, uh, that we have to look at, um, deductibles, uh you know, what kind of deductible do you want? Do you want a high deductible or a low deductible? Uh, and there's a lot of tricks to finding insurance coverage at the deductible you want. So if you know what the monthly premium or the annual premium is, uh, and you can calculate what sort of uh, care you need. And when I talk about buying insurance, you know, you, you talk about um, really sitting down and taking a look at the care that you need and then sort of maybe anticipating that it's coming so that you can get to those open enrollment periods through employers. You can switch deductibles once a year. You can uh, look at your uh, coinsurance and co-payments. Um Deductibles are usually on a calendar year basis or a plan year basis. A calendar year basis uh, uh, means that just from January 1 to December 31, your deductible runs or plan year, some plans, some employer plans will run from July 1 to June 30 each year. And that, of course, makes a difference when you're figuring out how much you're going to end up paying. Uh, sometimes people put their children or their loved ones into a facility uh, just at the end of the year. And, of course, they may have to meet two deductibles. Uh, it, so pre-planning, uh, you know, if at all possible, is always a good thing. Um, because you can you can make sure that you're not uh, having to pay two deductibles. Now, your out of pocket maximums or your co insurance limits those are protections. So everybody says, well, I've got a thousand dollar deductible. My insurance pays at eighty percent in network, but if you go out of network, it pays at fifty or sixty percent. Uh, some plans have a five thousand dollar out of pocket. So if the insurance company pays 60% and you're required to pay 40%, once your 40% equal $5,000 in a calendar year and you meet that, um, then the benefits go to 100%. But the catch is it's usually reasonable and customary. Now, if you're going in-network, you get the higher coinsurance. If you go out-of-network on a PPO, you get the out-of-network coinsurance, which is usually lower. Um, your some plans will have a different out-of-pocket maximum for in-network as, as opposed to out-of-network. Generally, the out-of-network coinsurance is higher the or lower, and the out-of-pocket maximum is higher. Now, why do insurance companies do that? They do that so they can discourage you from going outpatient. If they get you inpatient, they have more control over what, their spending, they teach their doctors to move you out of the facility a little bit quicker, Um, and of course, uh, and that's all in the name of cost control. Cost control is something we've always seen in the industry. Um, Insurance companies try and control their costs, as well as large employers. They don't like to see those monies going out. Now, um, each year you do get a renewal. Um, your renewals come, and they go. Um, and, and not only can you change your deductibles and your coinsurance limits, uh, your out-of-pocket maximums, but it's at that point where in today's society, having been in this business for 47 years, one year I'd say I needed glasses, and I would buy my vision, and then the next year I would take the vision off. So, consumers do have more say and control over what's going on with their own insurance policies than they probably realize. Now, most employers do have several different plans that they give, uh, options for. Usually, the bigger the employer, the more options you get. Small group plans, you're not going to have that many options. An employer may have two options, like at our, at our plan for our employees, um, we, we usually, uh, choose, we meet with our agent every year and we get that availability to pick and choose a plan once a year. Um, so the renewal time is, is a pretty important time, um, where you want to sit down and get a, get a feel for what your expenses are going to be. I think sometimes with mental health, it's a little bit more unpredictable, um, uh, but as a general rule, most families have at least a few hours, a few months' notice of getting their child or their loved one into a program. Uh, you can also uh, try some outpatient options first um, uh, and see if maybe you can work towards the beginning of the year when you can make it. Um, so the federal exchanges are open at the end of every year. The, the government plans change at the end of every year. And if you can get a chance to look at the policies, look at the things that are in it to see if it's going to be what you're looking for, that is always a good thing. Um, Now, uh, there's laws that govern uh, these insurance plans that are very important. Um, And uh, under the group insurance plans and the uh, what we call self-funded plans, the large employer plans, that fund their own insurance, uh, usually, again, large employers, 5, 10, 20,000 people or more. Uh, those, are, those are all governed under what we call the federal ERISA law from 1974. Uh, it's called the Employer Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. So I sort of grew up with that law. And then, of course, state laws are, are covering the small group market and the individual plans.
1: Um, Okay, Mary, we're going to take a little break here, and we will be back in just a few minutes, okay? Okay.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
0: what causes us to be sick we're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses we're talking about your body and health listen for the healing whisper of return to peace you're busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's busy, stressed, and food-obsessed show. This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back. We're talking today with Mary Covington and Whitney Duhaime from Denials Management Incorporated, and we're discussing navigating insurance for behavioral health and substance use disorders. Uh, Mary, you were um, talking a little bit about self-funded plans. Do you want to finish your thought on that? Oh, sure. That would be great. Thank you so much. Yes.
3: um, You know, uh, the small group and individual markets are generally governed by state law. Now, uh, anything where an employer contributes to the premium... Of, uh, of a group plan, a uh, small employer, it would, uh, it's sort of dually governed by both ERISA and state law, but I do want to just mention that ERISA preempts any state law. So if there's a conflict between the federal law and the state law, the federal law will govern. Okay, now I want to get into talking about uh, accessing, accessing mental health care and how we can go about that in today's market. Um, you know, I think number one, we've got to determine what level of care needs we have. So, you know, with all of the different levels of care in the health, uh, mental health, and substance abuse area, you know, there's acute hospitalization, residential treatment, outdoor wilderness. We have halfway houses, sober living facilities, transitional facilities, partial hospitalization, and and what we call intensive outpatient or IOP. So those are just the different levels of care. So I think one of the first things you need to do is determine what level of care you need. Um, and that's usually done by uh, by talking to the physician, the therapist. Uh, you may have an educational consultant that you're consulting with uh, that helps match uh, clients to programs. Uh, a lot of the adolescent programs do use those. You may want to access the uh, National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs called Natsap. Uh, you've got the Outdoor Behavioral Health Council, a website you can visit. Uh, there is a, a, is a Council of Parents, Advocates, and Attorneys that help families uh, locate school funding. Uh, and then, of course, if you're interested in the different levels of programs, you can certainly Google and, you know, spend some time uh, in the state that you're looking at. These programs are all over the country. I will mention that many, many, many of the programs are out of network. So that's why I, I recommend, if you're going to look for coverage, that you try to get into a PPO some way, shape, or form, because I think that's your best bet for accessing that all those different levels of care. Now, uh I, you know, when you're accessing benefits, you definitely want to get to know your insurance policy. And I know people, they don't want to read their insurance policy. It's really boring. It's like reading any contract. They, you just don't want to do it. But when you're searching for benefits, it's really good to get to know your benefits. Now, you can call your insurance company, but I tell people you can call your insurance company 10 times and you'll get 10 different answers. So me, I always tell people I'm from the Show Me State, Missouri. Give me your policy. Let me read it. I think that's the best way to do it. Uh, But do feel like you can call your insurance company. Tell them what level of care you're looking at and uh, review the exclusions or any limitations that might exist in the plan. Uh, Probably the exclusions is the first place you want to go once you know what level of care you're looking at, because if there's an exclusion for residential treatment, it will be in there. If there's an exclusion for wilderness, it will be in there. You want to rely on your plan's provision, not the carrier's verbal consent. The carrier, uh, you know, the carrier is not reliable. So, again, you can call them, but I would always rely on my plan. Now, where do you get your plan? You can call your insurance company. You can get it from your agent or your broker. You can sometimes they have them online, or if you're working for a large, large employer, self-funded, you want to go to your human resources department and you want to get that. Sometimes the policy can be called, many things that be called a summary plan description booklet. It can be called a certificate of coverage, an evidence of coverage, a policy, a handbook, and the term in ERISA, it's called a summary plan description. That's the most term that they know. Also, they should have a summary of benefits that you could access. It's sort of a grid of what the coverage is in-network and out-of-network. It's usually about 10 to 14 pages, and it gives you a lot of good information, and it'll show you your deductibles and the percentage that they cover in-network and out-of-network. Um, now, uh, once you choose your program and you've decided you know that your loved one needs to go there, that's when you have to look at okay, well, what do I need to do next? Well, this is where the tough part comes in because every insurance policy um, known to man has what we call a pre-authorization requirement or in the overall definition or word verbiage we use is the utilization review process, which includes the insurance company agreeing that your care is medically necessary. And medical necessity is sort of a... A, a static thing. You know, each insurance company defines it differently. They've got a set of clinical criteria. And again, that was another cost control method by insurance companies to save money. Um, and, and it came along with managed care back in the 80s uh, when the HMOs and the P, and the uh, EPOs sprang up. Uh, that way they can, you know, sort of put their thumb on you and say, okay, well, we don't think you need inpatient care. We think you need, just need outpatient care.
1: Uh, Mary, who decides the medical necessity? What's what? Who decides the medical necessity?
3: Usually it's the insurance company. The insurance company will have a pre-authorization department, or sometimes they have an outside company. Uh, We call them utilization review agencies. They're accredited through the states, and sometimes large employers carve out their mental health to these companies. And that company can either uh, do the pre-authorization and pay the claims or sometimes just do the pre-authorization only. And so these are the people that we have to sort of, you know, go talk to. Uh, What do they want? They want to hear everything about Johnny and what's Johnny's symptoms, who's treated Johnny, what's his problem, where's he been. Uh, So they they like to give a third degree. Most of those uh, pre-authorization calls need to be done by somebody clinical on our side. Their side always has somebody clinical at the insurance company or this pre-authorization company. And to get someone that isn't clinical is a little bit difficult. Now, there are two different ways. Some of them require full pre-authorization with the medical necessity information, and some of them just uh, require what we call notification, where you just notify them and they say, okay, uh, and then you submit your claim, and then they'll ask for the medical records and then do a back-end review of the medical necessity. And that's a little bit scary sometimes, but sometimes they don't always review them right away. You know, you might get a few months paid, and so it, it's sort of, that's why um, it's, it's very important to know the pre-authorization process now. Uh, inpatient, generally, for all inpatient mental health and substance abuse admissions, almost all of them require preauthorization, or probably about 10 to 15% of them will have a notification, like United Behavioral Health, or sometimes Sigma will just have a, a notification process. Um, now, for outpatient, uh, for partial hospitalization or that IOP, that intensive outpatient, only about 60 to 75 percent of the plans require preauthorization for those outpatient levels of care. When do you got a call? You got a call generally within 40, uh, 24 to 48 hours after the admission. They want the program to have evaluated the patient, uh, seen them, uh, uh, and, and are able to talk about them clinically. Who calls? Again, it's got to be a nurse or a therapist or even a doctor that will make the call. Uh, now, if you don't call, what's the penalty? So a lot of plans have a penalty. If you forget to call or the program you're working with doesn't do it, you want to find somebody. Many of the health care advocate firms out there like us do have therapists on board that can do the preauthorization process for you, even though we're not directly at the facility. So most penalties, $250, $500, $1,000. One company, 50% penalty, United Behavioral Health. Part of United Healthcare, Very dangerous. You have to really look at your policy now. Uh, a few, maybe two percent of plans out there have a 100 percent penalty. You don't want to be in that percentage. If you are, you're in trouble if you don't make that call. OK, now, what happens if we call in and we get a denial? Well, we've got to prepare for a denial. At some point, either the insurance company is going to deny it' as not covered or they're going to say it's not medically necessary. Uh, if it's wilderness, they're probably going to say it's not covered. If it's residential or in acute inpatient, they may say it's not medically necessary. Before you do anything, wait for the denial letter to arrive. Don't do anything. Don't panic. You have plenty of time. You want to get that letter. You want to check the denial reasons. You want to look at their rationale for denying. If they denied it for medical necessity, they will give you the clinical criteria. It's required under... Uh, the Utilization Review Accreditation Commission, it'll be right in the letter, usually the second page, says you can get it for free. So you call up and you get that. That's very important. Um, you want to make sure that they attach the appeal procedure. The appeal procedure that they attach should match the uh, procedure that's in your policy. So you want to double check it so they don't fool you. Many of them will attach the wrong procedure. Now for appeals, you got to review your plan. You want to look at the appeal procedure. There's two types of appeals, an, expedite, an expedited appeal, which is a phone appeal and a standard appeal. The standard appeal, written appeal is best. I only do the expedited if the family is having dire financial issues. You want to start gathering up all your evidence before you appeal. Other records, uh, letters of medical necessity from people who treated the child pre admission um you want to write a clinical uh, a chronological history of the child's problems and you want to start gathering up this evidence um you got usually got a level 1 or a level 2 internal appeal 180 days for the first level 2 is generally 60 days or 180 days if those fail you can get to an external review the federal uh process has uh, 120 days to do an external review it's going to go away from the insurance company away from that company that denied it and uh, under the state all states have their own regulations for external review Uh, you want to check your state it all should should be in your policy and in those appeal procedures they attached sometimes they forget and just attach one level of appeal process at a time so you definitely want to check your policy if all else fails You can look at an employer complaint if it's self-funded. Remember, if it's self-funded, the employer is funding the plan, not the insurance company. You're not paying a premium, so it's not really their ultimate decision. So if you feel like you've been wronged, you can write an employer complaint. And then, obviously, if everything else fails, you've got to see an attorney. You want to check it. You want to see what options you have there. There are statute of limitations so you want to be sure that you're following those uh, statutes very closely and those, that is always in your policy under the legal section. And great.
1: I would suggest... Go ahead. Oh, great, Barry. I think we're going to take a little break here and we'll be back with a little bit more uh, about uh, navigating uh, insurance for behavioral health and substance use disorders. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
0: on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So we're back today.
1: Our guests are Mary Covington and Whitney Duhine from uh, Denials Management, and we're discussing our topic today is Navigating Insurance for Behavioral Health and Substance Use Disorders. In our next segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about the history and a little bit about the laws and how we got um, to the point where we are today and a brief update on the Affordable Care Act. Um, Mary, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about uh, the previous laws?
3: Sure. I I'd be happy to. Well, you know, I've I sorta of grew up in healthcare forty seven years and you know, we we look at uh you know, all the federal laws. I, I, I do a, a conference and I'll I'll talk about the different federal laws. About every ten years we get a new federal law. And and so it's it's been an exciting, you know, ride because you get to learn a new law and new laws come in and they take effect. Um, and then everybody worries about how they're going to comply with them, and, and then they do interim rules and more interim rules, and then they finally do the final rules. And the final rules are what everybody's waiting for, and so it can be several years. And then, then once the final rules are in, everybody's got to come into compliance, and then that takes a, a couple, two, three years, and then all of a sudden you'll start seeing lawsuits. Lawsuits come out about the time people are supposed to be getting in compliance, and the plaintiff side reads the law a certain way, and the insurance lawyers read it another way, and and so it, it's it's a real interesting uh, uh, journey that you go on when you see a new federal law. Now, um, you know, pre uh, pre mental health parity, and we'll talk about pre mental health parity and pre Affordable Care Act because those were the the laws that really shaped uh mental health now ERISA as I spoke earlier we have the COBRA the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1986 we've got HIPAA the HIPAA laws came in and so and and that was I believe 1996 so you're looking at about an every 10 year period now uh before uh mental health parity and the Affordable Care Act which I'll get into a little bit uh, more here but you know before that we had like Limits. You could only go to the go to the mental health hospital for 30 days. You had a 30 day limit, or some of them had a dollar limit. So we had day limits and dollar limits. Dollar, dollar limits were oh, you had ten thousand a year you could spend, um, or lifetime limits where you had fifty thousand dollars for a lifetime for mental health and substance abuse, or sometimes uh, back in the day for dual diagnosis occurring, where you got you know, more than one type, like you've got a substance abuse problem and you've got a mental health problem, Um, you could uh, find that there was a $15,000 mental health benefit and a $10,000 substance abuse benefit. So uh, you'd submit your claim and the insurance company will pay the claim on the primary diagnosis, which might be mental health. And then, of course, we would write a letter and say, hey, hey, but the guy has, you know, substance abuse too. We want that additional $10,000. And so normally to get both benefits back in the day, you used to have to appeal. Now, um, many levels of care were excluded pre uh, parity and affordable care act. We had wilderness was never covered. Residential was never covered in most plans. And, but, but we didn't have as many pre-auth problems because, you know, 30 day benefit, who's going to, you know, pre-authorize and manage a 30 day benefit. You know, right now they're managing unlimited benefit. So, it, it It changed you know considerably when when the Mental Health Charity Addictions Equity Act came out in two thousand and eight. Uh, you now that was signed into law by President Bush. Uh, it was written by Pete Dominici and Paul wellstone. It's a well-known law uh, written in two thousand and eight, but you know the final rule did not come out in two thousand and thirteen. Now the interim rules the the beginning interim rules sort of uh, just said, well, you know, all you're going to get is uh, mental health uh, and substance abuse need to be paid the same as any other illness. Uh, and that meant medical. And yet there was no guidance. How, well, how are we going to determine that? You know, there's, there's no guidance. How could you argue that? So it took five years before the final rules came out for the Mental Health Parity Addictions Equity Act. November 2013. Now, that was the game changer. That law, that final rule was the game changer. That that final rule mandated coverage of intermediate treatment. Now, everybody says, well, Mary, what's intermediate treatment? Intermediate treatment is anything that falls between acute hospital and outpatient. Remember the level of the care I talked about earlier. So, acute hospital and partial and IOP um, partial is still considered intermediate, so it's not a full outpatient. So outpatient would be just where you go to the therapist twice a week. So anything between acute hospital and outpatient is considered intermediate. So the law went further and said, well, if this plan, if if the plan covers intermediate treatment like skilled nursing or inpatient physical rehab, even in a hospital, It has to give you intermediate treatment on the mental health substance abuse side. So that was great for everybody because that opened up coverage for many more levels of care, which I'll talk about in a minute. Now, the Affordable Care Act came out in 2010. What did the Affordable Care Act do for us? Oh, and let me go back. The Mental Health Care Addictions Equity Act only applied to employers who had 51 or more employees. So it didn't help the little guy, it didn't help the small group plans or the individual plans, but the Affordable Care Act came along in 2010, and it said, effective January 1st, 2014, I'm going to add the Mental Health Care or the Addictions Equity Act to those plans sold on the exchange, individual policies, and small group plans. So that gave us the ability to get the same benefits as the large employer's who had to cover it um, under the Mental Health Parity Addictions Equity Act. And the Affordable Care Act in our business for mental health really helped because it said you can't discriminate against a licensed provider. So if the facility you were going to um, and your policy was a mental health parity covered through the Affordable Care Act, they couldn't discriminate against it. So that opened up us getting wilderness coverage that we couldn't get, residential coverage, and the law even stated that residential was mandated. So that really helped us a bunch. Now, um, what successes have we had since, we've been, since those plans came in? Well, the Affordable Care Act gave us the external reviews for the self-funded plans. Before the Affordable Care Act, uh, the large self-funded plans didn't have external reviews, so you had to go straight to litigation. So that was a big deal. That was a big uh, game-changer. Now, uh, since the uh, final rules came in, uh, we've been billing wilderness, we've been getting wilderness money, and we just got the the American Hospital Association to issue wilderness, believe it or not, a revenue code so we can start billing. So we're legitimizing the wilderness. More insurance companies have reduced the exclusions, uh, wilderness exclusions in their plans, and major carriers are covering wilderness. Now, that also means that all those other levels of care that we couldn't get money for, transitional, halfway houses, sober living, all of those are open up to pursue these benefits that didn't exist. And Whitney's going to talk more later about how that might be affected uh, through the legislation, legislative stuff that's going on. Now, um, you know, the co-occurring stuff, isn't, um, you know, it's not so detrimental when we look at the federal parity because they have to cover us the same as any other illness. So, you know, uh, they can't exclude some diagnoses. Uh, As long as you have a a valid DSM code on your plane, you're usually going to be in if we got full parity. Now, you know, if you do end up on a plan that doesn't cover parity, what we call the non-grandfathered plans, or grandfathered plans. There's non-grandfathered plans, which are ACA, and then some large employers got to keep their uh, mental health benefits the old way, and they grandfathered their plans. So if you're stuck at a grandfathered plan that you can't get to the federal benefits, then you want to look towards state. What, you, what have you got available in the state? Now, some states have things like serious mental illness laws and uh uh, serious emotional disturbances of childhood like California or like New Jersey and a couple of states, biologically based or non-biologically based. Uh, non-biologically based, you can usually get an unlimited benefit. And then, of course, we've got autism laws, which have sprung up all over the states um, and are still ongoing. And there's a lot of fight uh, with autism right now. And from what I see, that there's been some uh, litigation um, and so you shouldn't want to give up on, on getting that. And then, of course, uh, you know, you want to look at, again, as we talked about earlier, can I switch my plan? Is there something I can do to get out of uh, the current plan I'm in? And, you know, talk to a broker, talk to a health care advocate, talk to your educational consultant, talk to anyone you can to gain information. Um, you know, uh, insurance plans are state-driven in many cases, uh, so you got to get to know your market in your state. Uh, Whitney, did you want to comment on anything here?
2: Um, yeah, just the, the one thing that... or two other important things that you're hearing a lot about lately in regards to the Affordable Care Act, uh, the benefits that they're talking about. One is the 10 essential health benefits, uh, which, which mandates coverage for uh, 10 different items, one very important one being uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment. Um, another item that the Affordable Care Act did is it also... Uh, put in pre-existing condition protections uh, for all Americans on, insurance, you know, on Affordable Care Act plans, so they exchange Medicaid and employer plans. And, uh, you know, and in the realm of, of behavioral health, uh, a lot of behavioral health diagnoses and substance, substance abuse disorders are also considered uh, pre-existing conditions. So the Affordable Care Act, did extend uh, the benefits to all plans because it's hard to have mental health parity if you don't have a mental health benefit, uh, which a lot of plans used to not prior to the Affordable Care Act. And then, of course, you want to be able to have protections if you've ever been treated for a mental illness or substance use disorder, um, which, you know, the Affordable Care Act allowed people to not be discriminated against if they've been treated for that in the past. And those are some things that you'll hear a lot about in the news lately because uh, that's, that's all kind of wrapped up into the current legislation and current rhetoric. Okay, very
1: good. Um, so, Whitney, what should families do? If um, they disagree with, you know, any of the um, decisions that have been made, how can they get their opinions heard on any of these issues?
2: Well, the best thing to do first is to call your legislators. Um, specifically at this time is to contact your senators because the bill has already passed the House of Representatives and it's now been given to a group of 13 senators to do a rewrite of the legislation. And, uh, you know, they're going to be looking at the bill And what's going to be very important and very impactful is for people to to call with their opinions, but also call with their stories. If this is something uh, where you've been affected by pre-existing conditions in the past or not having behavioral health benefits, or if it's something that you're going to need going forward or you're concerned about, uh, your your legislators, especially your senators, at this time, need to hear those stories.
1: Very good. Thank you very much, Whitney. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back shortly. Thank you.
4: Are you a pet parent? Are you interested in a better understanding of the care and health of your best friend? Listen every week for Pet Panorama with Dr. Julie Mayer. Just as in your own personal health care, you can also take charge of the health care of your pet by exploring natural approaches to keep them healthy in addition to more conventional veterinary care. Don't you want them having the best life possible? Listen Fridays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to
3: find your courage and strength You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: We're back today with our guests, Mary Covington and Whitney Duheim. We're uh, with Denials Management Incorporated, and we're discussing navigating insurance for behavioral health and substance use disorders. So, Mary, Whitney, I just want to ask you about your takeaways and if you could expand a little bit more on appeals and what uh, families should expect. How long does that process take?
2: Yes, well, the appeals process is um, lengthy, to say the least, um, you know, usually for your first-level appeal, you have 180 days. And um, the best thing that you can do is, you know, spend a lot of time collecting documentation, planned documentation, uh, prior clinical information. I mean, to a smaller extent, it's sort of like putting together a court case. And uh, so we usually discourage those phone appeals, those expedited appeals, because you can't get all of the information in. But it's, it's not a quick process. So you have your time limits to get in your documentation. Uh, insurance companies rarely do anything quickly. Um, and if you've dealt with insurance, you're probably aware of that. Uh, so an insurance company can take up to 60 business days to uh, process their response, and then you have to go through several several levels uh, of appeal, usually two internally and one externally. Uh, so one thing uh, we like to tell the families that we work with is, you know, you have to be, you have to be in it for the long haul um, if you're going to do this, because sometimes to be able to get insurance to respond all the way through, um, especially if you're going to be, Needing to do any complaints to spur them on to respond, or if they, they ignored information that you had sent, you know, you can be in this for, for 12 months to 18 months sometimes to get through the full appeals process. And then after that, of course, if you go to, to litigation, uh, that can also take a while for the attorneys to complete as well. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a simple process, but you know, only about 14% of all denials are appealed, and you know, so that's a lot of people who don't even know that they have that option. And it's, you know, according to us, it's it's worth the fight. The insurance company should be held, you know, to the contract that they have with you, and that contract is your insurance policy. So we hope that people will, um, you know, review the information that they've got, just don't take the insurance company's word for it, and, you know, and make sure that they, they hold them accountable for the things that they're supposed to be doing. Very
1: good. Mary, do you have any takeaways that you want to um, share with the the I do,
3: and, and, and I, I, I did forget to mention uh, that uh, one of the uh, other uh, mechanisms you might have available is is going to your state insurance department for a complaint. So if it's, a, if it's one of those uh, non funded plans, either a small group or an individual plan, and the insurance company is, you know, they hold us to a huge standard. If we're one day late getting an appeal in, they don't have to review it, and many plans say that, uh, you know, but they don't ever think that they have to be held to a standard. So, you know, the policy will say, well, you know, you got 30 days to respond to a claim, and you've got uh, 45 to 60 days to respond to an appeal. You know, but when they don't hold themselves to the same standards but hold us to them, you know, one of the things that we use is that complaint mechanism a lot. So I, I would say six, seven years ago, we didn't, we didn't have any insurance department complaints. And today, uh, we're probably filing 10, 10, 10 a week, I mean, in all the states around the country. So if you just consider, you know, uh, the administrative bunglings of the insurance companies today, you know, like I said earlier, you call them, you don't get the right answer, you get different answers. You know, everything's, well, it's in processing. You know, one thing you want is resolution to your claim. And so I don't feel like the insurance companies today are in the process of resolving claims. Um, they've cut back on their administrative people. Uh, they don't train them well. And so we all find ourselves in, you know, just in the muck and the mire. The other thing that they've done is they, they actually have a, a number on the back of your ID card, if you look at it, there's a number for members and a number for providers. And so we sometimes call in on the provider line and the family will call in on the member line. The family will call me and say, well, you know, so-and-so said, and I said, well, so-and-so doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and so many times we as healthcare advocates will get on the phone with the family um, and sort of guide them through that, uh, you know, phone wrangling that goes on. And so it, it can be just, I just can't even begin to tell you, um, to be in this business, to be a healthcare advocate today, you have to just be tenacious, and you have to be—you know—you have to—you know, you can't get frustrated too easily. And when oh. the insurance companies are flat out lying to the families, it, it gets it it really gets my hair up on the back of my neck sometimes. Well, and so well, and
2: ultimately, sorry, Mary, not to interrupt, but ultimately, you know, we're we're all consumers of insurance. When you pay a premium, you're a consumer. And your state insurance department, really, it, it's, it's a consumer protection that you have against the insurance company, you know, sort of giving you a raw deal or a bad product. Um, you know, Blue Cross of North Carolina was recently just sanctioned by their state insurance department. I believe it was somewhere up in, uh, in tens of millions of dollars. Uh, the New York State Insurance Department has provisions that states that if your insurance company does not respond to your appeal within the timeline required, then the insurance company has to pay the total of your claims that you're appealing. Um, They're backed up, I think, uh, about nine months before they get any responses, but they, uh, you know, there are protections in place, and that's what your state insurance department is is there to do, is to protect consumers of insurance against the insurance company's behavior.
3: Well, and and I will add that, you know, today we find um, some real um, uh, bad practices going on at some insurance companies where they sell you uh, a Cadillac policy and they deliver a Volkswagen policy. So you, you end up with these different things, and when you handle as many claims as we do, we begin to see trends in a certain state or in a certain geographic area, and we do have attorneys that take those, you know, because one of the things we want to do is not to have uh, anyone get taken advantage of, um, you know, by, by an insurance company or by uh, a self-funded employer plan. Who you know is is dictating uh, the, the way the policy should be run, and we find ourselves in uh, many of those situations, and uh, the attorneys that we work with, we have a network of attorneys around the country that we deal with, and you know they're they're very good at listening and uh, you know we're not attorneys. But we know enough, what I say, to be dangerous, you know, in looking at at these types of things. I've been a whistleblower against an insurance company. So it's easy to see uh, when you get inside the policy um, what they're required to give you and what they're not. And when you couple that with the laws and the rules and the regulations that the insurance companies are required to follow, uh, and we find that they're not doing it, you know, you've got to take action or... They will continue to, uh, you know, wreak havoc on the industry. Now, the, I will say that the other thing that we've got to deal with in the mental health field right now is licensure issues. All around the country, we've got uh, licensure uh, uh, issues going on where um, some states don't require the transitional facilities be licensed, but insurance policies require that they be licensed. So, how does a facility go about getting the licensure? So, I'm starting to work on some of those issues and move these other levels of care forward to get coverage that never had it before these laws came into effect.
1: Great. Thank you for that information. Um, So, would you say that uh, the best protection for families would be to be very familiar with their and read through their policy? Absolutely. I think... I think, um, you know, I can go
3: to a conference and ask the one question, how many of you have ever read your insurance policy? And you'd be surprised, maybe two hands out of 50 people will go up. And, um, you know, it's the same thing when we buy a refrigerator and there's a warranty or we buy a car insurance, you know. You have to get to know what your coverage is. And I think in healthcare, in particular, um, when you're not a good consumer and you don't know what your exclusions are. Like, I had a guy, I had a guy who had a motor, uh, a four, four-wheel vehicle accident, uh, and he, his policy excluded it. And he had a $200,000 claim
1: mm-hmm. and no
3: way to get any money for it because there was an exclusion. And had he known that exclusion was in there before he bought it, um, maybe he wouldn't have wrote his ATV. You know, maybe he would have got another policy. And so we don't think about these things as consumers. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and one, just briefly, you know, a lot of us, I mean, we are health care consumers, we're insurance consumers, but for about 150 million of us here in the United States, we get insurance through our employer. So, you know, in one way, the, our employer is actually the consumer and then we use the benefit. So a lot of us don't really get into the nitty-gritty when we're choosing our plan because that's what our employer is doing. But mandated under the Affordable Care Act, your employer is supposed to have a copy of that booklet and it's supposed to be provided to you. So, even if you're getting ready to go in for coverage or for care or there's something that you, you want to look at, if you don't have a copy of your booklet or didn't save it, uh, make sure to go to your human resources department because uh, your, your employer is supposed to have a copy on file for you.
1: So, uh, Mary and Whitney, if uh, any of our uh, audience wanted to get more information about any Affordable care, uh, uh, Affordable care Act updates or about how to reach you, would you share that information?
2: Absolutely. Um, the, the best way to look us up is going to be on our website, uh, which is www.fixmyclaim.com. That has all of our contact information. We also have a great blog, and we'll be putting up healthcare updates there. Um, you know, anything regarding the new legislation will be available. You can follow us on Facebook. Um, and uh, always able to reach out to us uh, by phone.
1: Very good. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Whitney, for being our guest today and for sharing this very important information, which is very timely. Um, And I also want to thank everyone for tuning in today and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you.